0: the power of their data wasabi, another Boston-based championship team.
1: Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Show Before the Show podcast from MILB.com. It is a it's a muted start to the episode this week. I don't know why. We were just having a conversation before this, and I was very normal energy level. And then I hit record and now I'm, it's like, we're hosting an NPR show.
2: Yeah. Are my you name, cold, my Tyler? Like iPhone. you got a hat on. I know it's I'm actually roasting.
1: I'm roasting. So I have this, uh, little recording studio set up in my house as, as people who listen to the show may be aware. Um, it's, I just like converted a closet in one of the, in one of the bedrooms and hung up a bunch of soundproofing foam. I don't know if the soundproofing foam also acts as insulation, but I am burning up. I mean,
2: probably also the (laughs) hat on your head that you are wearing indoors. It's true. I'm wearing a,
1: well, it's because I have disgusting hair. I haven't taken a shower yet
2: today. Oh, okay. All right. Good. See, this is payback now for you talking about my background and my apartment. Now I'm going to make you, I'm going to force you to acknowledge that you have bad hair. I walked
1: right into that trap unbelievable yeah. uh yeah. another rough start to the show for the guy who got mad at us for not talking baseball in his one-star itunes review uh as so we welcome you into this week's episode of the official podcast of minor league baseball my name is tyler Mon, the man making fun of me is samuel p dykstra and benjamin hill is uh with sam today ben what's going on
3: well i was the man who wrote that one star i right, right 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 so let's keep it <laughs> moving <laughs>
1: If that's Everything how we communicated, we just
2: did the show notes every week. That's why, ITG now that videos. I'm
1: thinking about it, that's why that guy's username was just Ben's Biz backwards. And I was like, wait a minute. And it turns out it was Evil Ben's Biz.
3: That's right. That's right. <laughs> I can only be honest on iTunes reviews. Zib
1: Sneb. <laughs> <laughs> the only time honesty comes into play is when you're reviewing things on Apple Podcasts. I admire it. I admire it. It's true. Um, it's the anonymity that does <laughs> Welcome into your latest and greatest and most favorite minor league baseball podcast as uh, we're set to uh, talk a lot of fun stuff coming up on the show today. If you uh, are finding us for the first time and you have the urge to give us a five star rating and review on uh, Apple Podcasts and Google Play and everywhere else, uh, you know, we won't stop it. You can go ahead and do that. Um, You can also get in touch with the show podcast at M.I.L.B.com. And uh, let us know your questions, your thoughts, your comments as we get closer and closer to the start of the 2022 minor league baseball season. And we got a lot of fun stuff to talk about today on the show. Uh, but before we get to all of it, I feel like we have to uh, pause and look back on. Maybe the most successful segment in the history of this show, which was uh, last week in honor of the upcoming National Hat Day celebrations that spanned the, the country from sea to shining sea, I imagine. Uh, We did a hat draft last week, four rounds in which we voted on uh, a whole bunch of different categories. Uh, Primary hat, an alternate hat, a Copa de la Diversión hat, and a wild card round. The three of us picked our favorite four hats, and this thing exploded on social media. Now it's all credit to Sam Dykstra who came up with this idea, but uh man, people, people ran away with this. Uh, including uh Twitter friend of the show, Caleb Webb, uh, who is running his own uh Twitter tournament for the best minor league baseball hats, which you can find on his account uh at Caleb G Webb on Twitter. People people loved our segment. They obviously are gonna love the same thing uh in in his Twitter bracket.
2: Yeah, and, and the great thing about it was it wasn't people saying like, oh, how did you miss this hat? Why didn't you pick this hat? it was a lot of people just sharing hats that they were excited about, and it just highlights just what the tapestry of minor league baseball is, is that we could have gone any number of different directions. And, not, you know, even I was kicking myself at hats I didn't pick, but we only have four hats. And the other good thing about that is – We only took four hats each. So there's lots of hats still on the board. There's lots of ways we could do this again in the future. Um, There's other ways we could do it. We could do just straight up logos. It doesn't have to be hats that we could do uh, names. We could do all sorts of different things. Um, We can expand it out. You know, we've had fellow writers on the show before Josh Jackson's on every week. We can bring him on Kelsey Hennigan, a lot, a whole stable of MILB writers that we could expand this out to in the future. So it was great to see that response and see people get it as psyched for minor league hats as we are. Um, but yeah, look for more of that in the future then if, if you guys are so excited about it. And we had just as much fun doing it as you guys did listening to it. So thanks for all that feedback and, and for listening to it. And uh, I'm doing all this to avoid saying who won the poll uh, because that's being done under protest.
1: Woo! Winner! It means me. I won. Now to I be mean, fair... It, I don't know if I would have won if I wasn't the one who posted the poll. And I was actually on – I was working on Sunday when I posted the poll, and I was thinking, should I post this from the Milb account? And then I just posted it from my account and retweeted it from Milb. So I feel like maybe that was like a little bit of tampering uh, with the results. But, Sam, do you want to note who did win the
0: poll?
2: Okay, so I'm going to put out several of my own caveats here. (laughs) Uh Tyler mentioned that he tweeted out the poll. So yes, Tyler won, but he won with 48.9%, which is not a majority, but a plurality. I came in second at 31.1%. Ben came in third uh with 20%. So normally a lot of places in these United States, if there's not a majority win, there'd be have a, runoff. a runoff.
1: Are you suggesting that we do a runoff? I'm,
2: I'm sort of suggesting we do a runoff at some point. or we can let them hold and just know that everybody, you had your hand on the scales of these. And I will hear you know, on the podcast designate. I am,
1: I am not here to suffer these slings and arrows well, or no, no, no. allegations of voter fraud on, on my, my base of supporters, Sam.
2: I'm just saying from henceforth to have clear and fair elections that you are allowed to tweet it from the MILB account.
1: Um, I just want to we don't point need out- a filibuster
2: to discuss this. We can, we can pass it right now with a clear majority.
1: What I do think that we should That's- do is when we post this episode tomorrow, uh, I think we should have the runoff. I think in a reply tweet from the MILB account, we should say, by the way, We've decided on a runoff between these eight hats, these two draft classes, Sam versus Tyler. Let's go. I Also, we do these calls on Zoom, and I feel like pretty often I look at poor Ben, and I just see his life flashing before his eyes like, what do I waste my time with these two idiots for? Uh, that
3: might be true, but I, f- <laughs> I feel like that over you know so much of my life that this is only just one little segment of it. And it all blurs into a uh, you know disaffected hole that can be, you know, hard to break apart. Okay. It's just a lump of being, what am I doing? You know.
1: Oh, at least I'm not honest a negative. About
3: it. Yeah, I'm very honest about it. I'm not a negative guy, though. I was just you know, playing for the camera a little bit, so to speak. And I will say that I'm glad that I finished third in the hat poll because that shows that I was true to myself and was not uh, choosing based on the perceived whims of the populace. But my idiosyncrasies were unique to me and therefore perhaps didn't connect with as many people. But that made them feel even more true to me.
1: And thus, I am the real winner. Okay. I don't, I don't disagree with that. I think it's, it's a good connection that you have with, uh, with your base. There. That's
3: right. So enjoy your runoff, and I will run off to somewhere more fun and have better conversations somewhere
2: <laughs> else. We are but two of a sea of idiots that Ben has dealt with.
1: That <laughs> Ben has been saddled with dealing with throughout his life. um Well, I'm very into this runoff idea, and I think uh we should probably coordinate that to go up on twitter.com later on this week. uh We are recording this on Thursday, the 20th of January, 2022. So be on the lookout if you're tuned in on Friday. You can check uh, at MILB on Twitter and uh, maybe that poll will be underway. Um, So we do have so many different options now of things that we can do to expand this out and inviting on other contributors from MILB.com is also a fun thing. Um, I I think we got to I think we got to start doing this. This is basically we've been doing this podcast for eight years and it's just a way for me to maneuver this into only voting on our favorite hats from here on out.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I, maybe we'll we'll put hats off to the side for a little while. Last yeah. week we did it for National Hat Day, which had a natural tie-in. Um, maybe give that a little bit of space. But like I said, if maybe we do one of these a month, kind of keep them fresh. I dig uh, it. Maybe in February we'll start putting in plans now to do it. The first of the month, the first podcast of every month, will be some sort of vote like this.
1: Favorite um, jersey, home jersey from low A. Favorite alternate <laughs> logo from AAA East, whatever it is. We got some yeah, the
2: options. We, if, if there's something you guys want to see out there, if it's, you know, favorite stadium, which naturally dovetails into what we're talking about next. But um, if there's any topic you want to see covered in this way, let us know and, and we'll put it added it to the what will be growing Google sheet uh,
1: very shortly. Favorite fake middle initial for Samuel Dykstra. There's only 26
2: of them, unless we're going into Greek letters. It's easy.
1: Well, we can't pick C because we're not having the real one. I mean, come on now. Um, So with that, as Sam pointed out, uh, favorite ballpark could be one of those things. And uh, ballpark guides continue to roll out on MILB.com and MLB.com. I'm still working on Omaha, but we'll be firing that one off this week. Uh, Sam and uh, Ben, I know it's a constant process around there. Ben, you've had Toledo most recently, correct? And uh, you got a, a raft of ballpark guides coming up.
3: Yeah, a lot. Most of my work, uh, in terms of, well, there's a lot going on, as there always is, but in terms of the stuff I'm producing uh, right now, most of it is ballpark guides. I'm in a real ballpark guide mode. Um, Lake County Captains came out last week, Toledo Mudhens earlier this week. I'm working on Fort Wayne Tin Caps now. So, Ohio, Indiana. Um, As I'm speaking right now, the most recent to appear was Toledo Mudhens. And uh, in writing that ballpark guide, it reminded me um, just what a great ballpark that is. I've been been there twice, and I think the first time was 2010, 2011, and it didn't make a huge impression on me. It was kind of an off night. But when I went again in 2018, uh, with what the team had done since then and also just being there for a, a blowout weekend game, um, just such a cool place to see a ball game. You know, it's in Toledo's downtown and the warehouse district. Um, so, the ballpark architecture and feel is, you know, that warehouse feel. And not only that, over the last several years, the team has bought uh, several warehouse buildings in the immediate vicinity of the ballpark, and they call it collectively Hensville. And so there's just so much going on around the ballpark connected with the team. Some of the Hensville buildings, you know, which have bars and restaurants on the lower floor have uh, higher areas or rooftop areas that you can have as group um, areas uh, for the game. And so there's just so many vantage points, a really interesting architect architecture, a ton of history, um, you know, especially for the mud hens franchise with that name going all the way back to 1896 with Toledo, hosting a American association team in 1884. And uh, that's now considered a major league. And that team had Moses Fleetwood Walker, a black catcher, um, you know, who was the last black player to play in the major leagues until Jackie Robinson in 1947. So there's that bit of history. Uh, Mike Hessman, in much more recent years, the all-time home run leader played there. And there's now like the Mike Hesman, uh, you know, home run porch on the outfield concourse below the scoreboard um, and on and on, you know, a funnel, uh, a, a funnel cake stand named after Jamie Farr, you know, who was of course a clinger on mash and he would wear mud hens gear uh, on the show. And he made the team internationally famous through mash. He's a Toledo native and now you can get funnel cakes at far out funnels and on and on. But this is just um, so much going on at the ballpark, um, a a city with great baseball history and so much to explore and uh, a team that is just, you know, kind of uh, from a front office perspective, um that is doing so much running the team running as we've talked on the show before also running the ECHL orphan initialism uh Toledo walleye um and as well as all the Hensville uh, buildings surrounding the ballpark you know post-game concerts um it, it's just wild also when I was there in 2018 it was a DORA zone D-O-R-A and that maybe stood for like downtown outdoor recreation area but anyhow in that part of downtown where the ballpark is, and there's all these other places you can go around the ballpark, bars and restaurants, you can get your booze to go. So it's, you know, before, after, during a game, you can kind of do that more what I associate with New Orleans or Savannah. Yeah. um, And have that more just like, let's go here. Let's go here. Let's go here. The game's still going on over there and there's a concert going on over here. So I don't know, maybe I fell in love with Toledo.
1: (laughs) It does sound like a very cool place. It's one that is high on my list uh, to make here in uh, in the coming seasons in minor league baseball. And uh, so you can continue to check those out at MILB.com slash fans slash ballpark dash guides. And uh, with that, uh, we're going to pivot to one news item before we dive into our interviews for this week. Uh, there is a new minor league team name that uh, was supposed to be announced Via some fanfare and, uh, and an official unveiling party Coming up on January 29th It still will be But it was also leaked onto the internet uh, and confirmed So the Sugarland Skeeters The AAA affiliate of the Houston Astros Are said to become the Sugarland Space Cowboys um, We're going to circle back on this When we have an actual logo to talk about New marks, the new identity and all of that um, So didn't want you to think that we were neglecting it But uh, that story um, coming up Uh, Not next week, but the week after we'll finally get a chance to talk about that um, full on And uh, we've got a new segment this week as well, which is coming up after our interview But it's the return of Ben's bookshelf Uh, Benjamin Hill, uh, a few years ago, would dive into baseball books and uh, baseball-related books And and give us reviews uh, on the site And now we're going to do that on the podcast Ben, two segments away, but give us a preview of what's coming up in Ben's bookshelf this week
3: Yeah, you know, I always enjoyed the book reviews, but over the years, you know, often had less time for it, or maybe I read a book and it had a minorly connection, but it didn't seem right for a standalone article, and then I didn't have the blog and blah, blah, blah. I had anxiety per usual. I want to cover this, but how do I do it? And then I was like, you know, that'd be a good podcast segment. And uh, so this won't be a weekly thing, but just, uh, you know, as necessary, as needed. And of course, it doesn't just have to be Ben's bookshelf, Uh, I'm sure Sam and Tyler and maybe some of our coworkers. Um, would like to, at times, uh, you know, highlight their own favorite minor league baseball books. But I think it's good to get books into the podcast. And um, for this debut uh, podcast installment, uh, I talked to a guy named Michael Lortz, who I've known for a long time, you know, just through the internet and minor league baseball, the way you meet people of similar interests. But he's going to be talking about his book, Curveball at the Crossroads. And uh, I had a good conversation with him and uh, glad to be talking books on the podcast and tied in with everything else. Get in touch with me, get in touch with the podcast, the show before the show podcast, Twitter at Ben's biz. However, let's talk about your favorite minor league books, or if you are an author or you are writing one or whatever, um, you know, we're happy to, to keep on doing this.
1: And our interview segment this week, which uh, was a ton of fun. Uh, we just finished up recording a little while ago. Uh Ben, give us the, the lead in.
3: Yeah. Well, as I said, in the lead into the, to the interview itself. So don't want to be uh too redundant but you know talking to John Katz last week about transitioning from one sport to another and one country to another he went from minor league baseball to soccer in the UK it reminded me of Jarrah Vela Wright who I met in Chattanooga last year um I remember it was soon after I got to the ballpark it was the first ballpark uh at and field that I visited this season and obviously I hadn't been anywhere and 2020 because no one had so I was like wow I'm back at a ballpark and one of the first guys I met at the ballpark I was talking to uh, right after I arrived and after a few seconds of conversation I was like I think this guy has an accent and I was like I think he's Australian and then of course as a writer I'm like hey we should we should talk later on you know you might have an interesting story so we spent the last like inning of the game talking about his story I was unable to convert it to an article in the wake of my trip but I never forgot you, Jaravella writes, and uh, we now have him on the podcast today. And happy to talk to him, and uh, we enjoy talking to people with uh, you know interesting front office careers, um, you know who came from you know maybe backgrounds or career paths that are outside the norm. Last week on the show before the show podcast, we spoke with John Katz, who went from the president of the Columbia Fireflies all the way to a new career in the United Kingdom. He's the executive director of the Woking Soccer Club, and that was obviously a really interesting career change. Never heard of anyone going from minor league baseball to running a soccer club or football club in the UK. But anyhow, that conversation got me thinking about a man that I met last year in Chattanooga, Jarrah Vela-Wright, who is the team's Ticket Partnership Manager. He's been with the Lookouts for, I believe, four years, five years. He'll tell us everything. But he isn't a native of Australia, and uh, that's a long way to to grow up in Australia and then be working in the trenches in a minor league baseball front office in Chattanooga. So Jarrah, he is here, and he will tell us about his unique career. Thanks for being being here with us today. Hey, guys. Yeah, thanks for having me. So before we get into anything... um, you know, regarding uh, how this all happened, and let's just start in the present moment. You are the ticket partnership manager for the Chattanooga Lookouts. Uh, yep. Just tell us a little bit about what you do in minor league baseball.
4: Sure. So I work with businesses uh, throughout the Chattanooga area, um, all across the tri-state region that we have here in Tennessee, um, to bring them out to the ballpark, You know, make memories at the ballpark to have a good time um you know obviously there's a a number of different ways that they can be doing that but really the essence is to to come out during one of our lookouts games or or multiple lookouts games um and have a good time with their family their colleagues whoever it may be uh and leave the ballpark with a smile on their face
3: all right seems reasonable enough but you're a native of melbourne australia and uh the job you're doing now is not the sort of job that most people in Australia are doing. Uh, traveling all the way across the country, working in Double A minor league baseball, uh, getting familiarized uh, you know not only with a whole new country but you know having to be very knowledgeable about the region to sell tickets. It's been a journey. So if you could tell us a little bit about what was your knowledge of minor league baseball growing up or baseball in general, and how did it slowly evolve into this uh, interesting career path? Sure.
4: Yeah, it, it took me a qu- quite a long time to really. Um, to come across baseball. You know, I, I wasn't really much of a kid who liked sports in general. It took me a while to get around to you know, Australian football and cricket and you know, some of the local sports that we have uh, back down under. Um, so baseball was never really part of my attention up until maybe you know, some, some trips here and there throughout the U.S. Uh, 2007, I believe it was, we uh, took a trip here, went to a, a New Britain Rock Cats game. Mm-hmm. Um, that was my first ever baseball experience, minor or major. Um, don't really remember a whole lot about that experience other than just, you know, some guys swinging a bat around. Um, but then in 2009, started to get a little bit more of an idea of baseball as the, the Yankees were making a run to the World Series. My grandfather, being from Connecticut, drew my attention to that. Um, and then slowly but surely from there, the, the interest fostered in, in Major League Baseball. Uh, and then eventually starting to figure out where the heck these guys were coming from to minor league baseball. Um, but it really, the, the growth of minor league baseball didn't really take my attention until about 2015, 2016. I spent a semester exchange here at Michigan State University um, and, and really learned a lot more from there.
2: Yeah, so how, how many Lugnuts games were you going to in, in that semester? I mean, that, that's Lansing, Michigan is right there, right there. Um, Michigan State works pretty well with the Lugnuts, it, it seems like. like, How many games were you going to then?
4: Yeah, no question. So I went to probably about eight or nine Lugnuts games. Um, they, they made the playoffs that year. They made the second round of the playoffs that year. Um, so I remember specifically going to a couple games in their last homestand that they had, which then flowed right into the playoffs, which they were hosting the first round. Uh, I believe it was against West Michigan. Uh, they won the first two games of that series it was a three game series so they were into the next round um, and then I went to both of those games as well. Uh, I reached out a guy who is still in Lansing um Jesse Goldberg strassler. Um, I reached out to him at the time of the podcast. I was interested mm-hmm. in uh, in getting involved in you know in commentary of of baseball um, so he was kind enough to take me under his wing for a for a game um let me hang out with him in the radio booth, show me around the minor league front office and Yeah. So in answer to your question, a lot of log nuts games, that's for
2: sure. Yeah. Jesse, Jesse's a good resource for anybody, whether they're Lansing based or otherwise as as Ben said, definitely a friend of the show and anybody in minor league baseball. Um, So then just kind of going back to this job you're in now, you know, that interest may have been peaked around that time, but then all of a sudden, like a lot of people in job seekers, you're trying to find a job in minor league baseball that can send you to all four corners of the country or even internationally, if you go to Vancouver. Um, so what was it about Chattanooga that ended up working out and what was the transition like just to Tennessee? Cause like you said, you had some experience in Connecticut and Michigan, but Tennessee is a completely different area.
4: Yeah, very much so. So Chattanooga wasn't actually my first stop in minor league baseball. Um, I spent a season working. My first ever season was in 2017, 2017. Um, I was an intern with the Beloit Snappers, the then A ball affiliate up there in Wisconsin. Um, and so I, I applied for a number of positions after completing that job. One of them was here in Chattanooga, actually a position I'd applied for the year prior, um, but un- understandably a uh, guy from Australia. They didn't really you know want to touch me because didn't have a lot of base- any baseball experience really. Um, but after that season, Got a job here um, as the media and promotions assistant here in Chattanooga, Tennessee, 2018 that was. Um, And then in July of that year, they asked me to stick around full time, selling tickets to to groups and everything. Um, And so that's where I've been ever since. That was my number one goal when I came here to Chattanooga was to stick around um, and been able to do that.
1: When you explain to people back home what your job is, I would imagine there's a lot of like, "Wait, you do you do what now? What? Uh, how, how are the conversations like with people back home in in Melbourne?"
4: Yeah, it's complicated. Um, honestly, I tell them that I work in a small town and try and bring everyone to the, to that city to baseball games. That's essentially what it is. Um, you know, it, it's really minor league baseball and and getting into it, even for Americans, is kind of complicated. You know, it's most of our fans don't understand what we do on a day-in, day-out basis, and they don't understand why the heck that we're here on January 20th, uh, you know, when baseball season doesn't start until April. Um, So it's really explaining things to Australia uh, and my friends down there and explaining things to our fans here in Chattanooga is really no different. Um, You know, at the end of the day, we're just trying to, get people to come out and have a good time while enjoying a baseball game.
1: You also spent a little bit of time with the Melbourne Aces back home uh, in the Australian Baseball League. And, um, you know, baseball in Australia is probably like a third tier sport in terms of popularity and size, but certainly growing over there. Um, What was your experience like getting a chance to work in the ABL, especially with some MILB experience and now being you know back in the minor leagues full time? What was that like?
4: Yeah, it was very much the beginnings of where I'm at right now, um, there was being a small team and everything like that. It took me a while to realize that, you know, there was a lot more to baseball than just, you know, the Australian baseball league and everything. Um, but just all the fan engagement that they were doing, all of the stuff outside of the baseball diamond, right? You know, you, you kind of think about all the stuff in between foul line to foul line. Um, but that gave me a great understanding of everything outside of that All of the sponsorship that goes into it, all of the importance of, you know, recognizing a Toyota during an innings break or, you know, having selling tickets, you know, getting people to the to the to the gates and everything. Um, So, yeah, the, the Australian Baseball League has certainly grown over the last couple of years, you know, having guys like Ronald Acuna Jr. down one end of the spectrum and then a retired Delman Young or Manny Ramirez signing with the Sydney Blue Sox, not being able to play down there, but still signing there. Um, you know, it's very much a little taste of what you can experience in minor league baseball. And, you know, I would even say put it below the standards of rookie ball and everything like that. You know, the quality of baseball is, is definitely growing. Um, But if you want to, you know, if you want to get a a good little taste of Australia and and come on, come on down, have a a nice summer and stuff like that, spend a
1: couple months down there. Why not? When you are working in minor league baseball as an Australian, you uh, obviously have a very unique um, background and it's neat how many people uh, actually are connected to baseball who come from Australia. Have you come across, uh, you know, whether it's players or um, fans who are, uh, you know, Australian baseball fans are very dedicated. If you get somebody who comes through the ballpark and happens to be Australian, they're going to be uh, somebody who's probably interested in seeking you out. Uh, you're also uh, affiliated with the, the Cincinnati Reds who just made a signing uh, out of Australia, I believe out of Queensland uh, with Ben Walmsley, who's a 17-year-old pitcher. Um, have you come across... Many other people since working in baseball that you kind of get to you know talk about Vegemite and uh, and kangaroo sausages with.
4: Yeah, you know Australians are certainly few and far between um, around here. You know I've had certainly a couple of fans um, who might be here for vacations or they live in the U.S. and you know and they're just in Chattanooga. Um, so anytime that there's an Australian in the ballpark, it's generally made known to me. Um, via one of my colleagues or or one of our game day staff, they're like, Hey, there's someone who sounds like you you." might know this person exactly. They think, you know, (laughs) we're brother brother and sister or you know, friends from down the street.
1: It's like Um, when a New Yorker meets somebody who's from a state that you're from, and they're like, Oh, I know a guy who's from Montana, you probably know him. Sorry, very New Yorkers on the show, very much
4: so. Uh, but my number one, my number one, you know, coming across of Australians. 2018 uh, lookout season was my first year, as I said earlier. Um, And we actually had not one, but two Australians on the roster to start that season. Um, So we had a a pitcher by the name of Todd Van Steensel, but then we had... Another
1: friend of the show, everybody's favorite.
4: Great, great guy, great guy uh, from Queensland himself. Uh, But then we had a guy, Lewis Thorpe, who I believe is now um, up on the major league roster with the Minnesota Twins. He is. Um, I'll drop a I'll drop a bombshell here. He and he and I were actually clubmates as kids, um, so not only did we know each other, we played together uh, at the same baseball diamond in Doncaster, Australia. Um, so that was crazy to me landing here in Chattanooga and a, a guy who I hadn't really seen in a few years, but you know spent a few few years playing baseball with him. Um, his parents came up later on in that season and. Yeah, so it, it's very much a small world.
2: Yeah, and kind of along those lines, like Liam Hendricks right now is arguably the, the best closer in, in Major League Baseball. Yeah. Um, you know, we see some of these things about players from Japan, you know, people staying up to watch Otani, and I'm not saying he's at Otani's level, but is there that kind of fan base that's like staying up to watch White Sox games or Twins games or, you know, whatever else, Curtis Mead is another guy coming up through the race system right now. Like, are is there that type of fan base that's constantly talking about the guys here in the majors or how, how does that kind of work back home? How, how does that trickle down?
4: Yeah, th- there is certainly that fan base. Um, you know, there's a lot of American expats in Australia that will also be talking about it. You know, there's, if you spend a few months around a baseball field um, in Australia, you're gonna co- going to come across naturally a lot of Americans, probably a few Canadians as well, um, so there is definitely that fan base, you know, we'd always be talking about um, as kids when I was playing baseball, you know, those guys who are up and coming, I know Trent Olchin back in the day to uh, blast you guys back an outfielder for the Dodgers for, I don't know, he had a cup of coffee in in major league baseball. Um, there is certainly that conversation about them. And, you know, honestly, I- I'm rooting for guys like Hendricks and Mead and, you know, these, obviously Lewis, you know, there's, we're, we're such a sports um, driven nation. We love, we have take, take great pride in all of our sporting individuals or teams um, who represent Australia across the world. Um, that it's certainly one of those things where I'm absolutely rooting on those guys and, you know, constantly checking up and seeing what, what Liam Hendricks is doing.
2: And just to kind of go back to to your day job, basically, because we're looking back at so much of what we've talked about on the show the last few weeks and months is that 2021 for a lot of people felt like a dress rehearsal right it was just it was good to have baseball back it was good to have people back in the stands Um, but everybody was kind of finding their footing And 2022 can kind of be that launching point so when you guys are looking at selling tickets and trying to bring people out to the ballpark in Chattanooga what kind of plans are you guys putting in place or what is the overall strategy going to be uh, for this upcoming summer?
4: Yeah, certainly, it, it, it's quite a challenge at the moment. Twenty twenty one was a, a good little taste of what to expect. You know, all of all minor league teams kind of went things, you know, went about things a little bit differently. We all had different capacity restrictions and and what have you, based off of local guidance and you know all the rig, uh, restrictions from the CDC that we've you know come to accustomed to on a day daily basis. Um, so, but right now we're looking at you know, full baseball, full-fledged, have everything back to normal, um, hopefully get as many people out to enjoy games as possible. You know, and for us, it's kind of almost a, a flashback to 2019 and picking up from the end of 2019 rather than the end of 2021. But just because it was so much of an anomaly for us and, you know, all of our attendance numbers and everything like that are so different. So we certainly understand that there's going to be a lot of, uh, a lot of masks probably around and and what have you around the ballpark and certainly a few changes um, to 2019, but it's, it's kind of just one of those things as well. We don't know what tomorrow looks like, let alone what April 12th, uh, when our first game is looks like. So we're hoping for the best. We're working at, you know, playing 69 games here this year um, and having as many people as we can, but understand and ready to roll with the punches, whatever they may be.
1: Jerry, I got to ask you a, a baseball-related thing. Your uh, ABL alma mater, the Melbourne Aces, have been maybe the most talked-about story in uh, in baseball over the last few weeks because uh, Genevieve Beacom, a 17-year-old left-hander, made her professional debut. She is the first uh, woman to pitch in the Australian League, uh, and it you know wasn't a token thing. She's out there slinging 84, 85, and dropping in uh, Bugs Bunny breaking balls and stuff. And um, you know, to be somebody who's in a minor league front office, and you said before we started recording. That you had uh, front office members, fellow front office members, coming up to you that day, like, "Hey, did you see this out of Melbourne? What's happened been like seeing uh, you know your old team kind of take center stage on the the baseball landscape?"
3: It's it's awesome.
4: I mean, it, it's completely unheard of, uh, you know, to to not have any sort of other chatter about you know major league baseball, or minor league baseball, or you know even Venezuelan baseball uh, to you know to be thrown around, and it's instead it's the Australian Baseball League, and yeah, the team. Uh, that was my hometown team. Um, it's it's fantastic. I think it's only a good thing for the Australian Baseball League. You know, no matter how much, any way that you can get publicity for that league, you know, good publicity, of course. And in the vein that it is, um, you know, to to get people to go down there and you know, even just be thinking about it, if you're an American um, taking a vacation to Australia anytime soon, to just check out a game or two. It's a it's a lot of fun. They do a great job at what it is, and um, man, I. In, for for chloe specifically i'm man i am look, hoping nothing but the best for her uh i i'm excited to see you said she's 17 you know there's a there's a long way to go between 17 and even 22 so i'm excited to see what she can be doing with her career and excited to see where it's going to go
1: to talk to her uh, and her manager former big leaguer Peter Moylan uh, a couple of days ago and Moilo noted she's added 14 miles an hour to her fastball in the last year 14 miles an hour and she's 17 she's just now getting in the weight room all that um, that is that is not a token story that is a very exciting and legitimate baseball story that uh, that everybody should keep an eye on Absolutely. And Peter Mullen as well. Great ambassador, I will say, for Australian baseball. Among the most charismatic people you're ever going to talk to.
3: And Jarrah, going back to your day to day with the Chattanooga lookouts, um, obviously a a big part of the offseason is obviously planning for the coming season. Uh, A lot of brainstorming, throwing ideas against the wall to see what sticks. Um, With your unique perspective, are there elements of Australian culture, whether sporting culture or otherwise, that you think, Hey, this could work in Chattanooga, whether it's, uh, you know, music over the, over the PA, uh, certain concession items. I don't know about Vegemite or kangaroo sausage, like Tyler was saying, but, um, you know, just things that might not be in the minds of, uh, the average American that you say, Hey, you know what I've seen before, you know, what might work. You know, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, because I kind of think that a lot of
4: aspects that you see in Australian sports has been taken from American sports. A lot of aspects of Australian, you know, well, not culture, but you know, a lot of things that work in Australia have been taken from the United States or another part of the world. Um, So no, not really. I mean, I I wouldn't be opposed to playing a little bit more ACDC or some NXS (laughs) or, you know, some midnight oil around, you know, during the men at work, men at work. uh, Well. (laughs) That's where we draw the line. I love that (laughs) song, but yeah, I I don't, I I hear that song enough on a daily basis as it is.
1: I do remember Uh, how shocked I was. at like, oh, they play this song everywhere all the time down here.
4: I come from the land down under.
1: I was very surprised by that. All the time. But uh, so, so uh, men at work, we can
4: definitely draw the line. But, you know, a, a lot of Australian music, you know, in terms of food and everything like that, so. There is something at a meat pie. Uh, it's, it's just basically a ground beef pie that's in your hand. You know, it's no bigger than, say, a large cookie or something like that um, with some tomato sauce on there. I would definitely be you know, there is certainly some foods and, and what have you. Ben, you mentioned Vegemite. I think we could do a lot of great things if the Chattanooga Lookouts wanted to have some Vegemite in the concession stands.
1: Um, you know some some cheap. let just put great things in quotes there. <laughs> <laughs> Vegemite <laughs> conversation. Let's just let's just reinforce that.
4: There's a lot of great opportunities with that, but you know, in terms of the the in in game product and everything uh, that's going on, I think uh, minor league baseball has it down to a T. Yeah, let's let's I agree though. Keep throwing ideas out, and you never know what might happen. But it's it's an incredible. Incredible thing that each of the, the 120 teams do around the country, um, you know, keeping fans ent- engaged and entertained.
3: Well, I, for one, hope to see uh, Australian Night on the Chattanooga Lookouts uh, 2022 promotional schedule, Vegemite sandwiches, oil cans of Foster, midnight oil playing over the PA. And um, Hey, can we, can we sing the Australian
4: National Anthem before that game instead of the American National Anthem? Everyone's heard the American National Anthem
3: 160 odd times. That would be great. The Australian actually, National Anthem is beautiful, too. Yeah, and to close out this interview, we would like to ask you to um, <laughs> please sing the Australian National Anthem. We will stand over nope. no, 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 sir. I will uh, I will not be putting myself through that
4: embarrassment. That, if, uh, if I were to start even singing the first line of that, that is something that a lot of people will never let me live down. So, um, I'm going to maybe Ben, when you come, uh, next, come to Australia, uh, Australia, ca- come to Chattanooga. Maybe we They're can both sort of down. down under
1: Chattanooga's <laughs> way under you
3: guys. Yeah. Well, I'd look forward to that then. Uh, we'll schedule that for my next visit Sounds and, great. Uh, yeah, and Tyler, maybe he can find a snippet of the, uh, Australian. You national read my anthem. mind. You read well, maybe, my mind. Maybe the whole thing. What we hope is that this segment might be followed by the Australian national anthem. I feel like well, the land in the down meantime, under probably, it's just the most fitting.
4: You know, men at work is just the most fitting song to, <laughs>
1: to end with. We'll end it with that instead of the. That actually is fun fact. That actually is the Australian national anthem. Is men at works? <laughs> I come from a land down under. <laughs> people, people don't know that when they stand atop the podium in the Olympics, that's the song that plays. Not true. That's a lie
3: very rude jared we are sorry that uh (laughs) uncouth americans have uh, ended ended this segment on such a, a rude note uh resorting to every base stereotype of the australian people we apologize but we thank you very much for coming on the show before the show podcast talking about your life and career and uh hope to stay in touch and talk to you again
4: absolutely thanks guys
3: Here on the show before the show podcast, I, Benjamin Hill, Ben's Biz, have decided to resurrect um, a column that I used to write for MILB.com, Ben's Bookshelf. And uh, over the years, over many years, over a decade plus, I would just feature books that, in one way or another, were, of course, about baseball and often in some way or another about minor league baseball. And I thought, you know what? That'd be a good thing to do on the podcast. So let's try it out. And here for the first podcast, Ben's Bookshelf. We have Michael Lortz, the author of Curveball at the Crossroads. Michael, thanks for being here with us today, or just with ben, me, really.
5: And always great to see you. Always great to talk to you. And uh, thanks for having me on.
3: Yeah, my pleasure. And uh, before we get into the book, you know, I've known you, you know, at least online through the internet for well over a decade. I think I first um, met you, so to speak, through a blog you were involved with or a website you were involved with bus leagues baseball so if you could just give us an overview of uh you know who you are and uh your baseball fandom because i know it is deep and intense
5: sure thanks uh yeah like i said like you said we talked uh we met through bus leagues baseball and that was a freelance minor league baseball blog that i wrote for for about three years three or four years or so really good idea out of the uh, brain of a Eric Angie Yvonne and Brian Moynihan and uh, the two of them would just find writers, local writers in different regions that had uh, good concentrations of minor league baseball. I live in the Tampa Bay area. There's a lot of forest state league action or what was the Florida state league. And so I would go to games once a week or so, be at the Clearwater Threshers, Tampa Yankees slash Tarpons, Bradenton right Marauders and stuff like that. And I would just write about the games on these websites And we do gaming recaps. We do interviews of prospects, interviews of whoever. I think I interviewed a bus driver once. I interviewed the concession stand folks, you know, just to get that real feel for minor league baseball. And we did it on an independent blog. And obviously you were doing what you were doing with minor league baseball at the big level, you know, for the actual organization. So we always kind of looked up to you. It's kind of like the the granddaddy of us all, you know, (laughs) and, um, but yeah, I did that for a few years. Um, that was always, always, writing about baseball has always been my side gig. Um, I work as a government contractor. I've had various different jobs working with the U S military for most of the last 15, almost 20 years. And um, you know, just I've always felt like baseball is just a great escape. It just, I get out of work and I just go to a game, grab a beer and a hot dog and just sit in the bleachers. Even if it's just me and a $5 ticket, you know, Tampa Bay, we have so much baseball between the Rays, the minor league, spring training. It, it's, it's sort of a baseball paradise.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes bleachers and beer is really all you need to, to have a good evening and you don't even need anyone else. Just sit down and, and enjoy the game. Um, but now you've moved on to writing a debut novel, Curveball at the Crossroads. It is, you know, in many ways, a, a classic American story. I mean, it's about our national pastime, of course, but also the whole uh, meeting the devil at the crossroads, rural Mississippi. Uh, you know, that's a uh, very ingrained myth in American culture, Uh, you know, Robert Johnson, blues guitarist, And um, I know, you know, are are familiar with all this, but uh, if you could tell us about this book and uh, how it came about.
5: So, yeah, absolutely. So the book, as you said, it kind of takes those two very Americana themes, baseball and the making the deal with the devil, uh, making the deal with the devil at the crossroads and just puts them together. I feel like this was as natural as peanut butter and jelly. And I was really surprised that nobody had ever done this before. You know, we have a lot of stories about the devil with music, a lot of stories with the devil. Um, There's even, you know, there's a show Lucifer where the devil's a bar owner. uh, And there's so many stories in media where people make deals with the devil, but there had never been one. Oh, the closest I could find was damn Yankees. And that was more or less from a fan's perspective. He makes a deal with the devil so the Yankees will lose, if I'm not mistaken about that. But never a an athlete who makes a pact with the devil and you know and, and sells his soul. And I was actually working with the military. I was in Afghanistan and just I feel like I maybe I was listening to the, the devil went down to Georgia one day and I said, Oh, this this would make a great baseball story. So it kind of turned it into a, a five-page short uh, short story sent to a few friends. They were like, we need more. But this is, you, you have, you know, introduction and conclusion way too quick. We need more. What happens to the guy? Like, how did he, how did his career grow and all that stuff? So it ended up, ended up being about a 200-page Word document uh, during my time working with the military in Afghanistan. And as I, as I mentioned to you prior to the interview, I had nothing else to do out there. It was work 12 hours. And then what do you do when you get off time? You know, you're just watching DVDs or you're maybe going to the gym. So me, I wrote a baseball novel. And uh, then it sat on my desktop for years or it sat on my hard drive. And when the pandemic hit, I realized that we didn't have any baseball and nobody had baseball. And I had this story that a bunch of people had liked uh, that I'd sent it to kind of just a rough draft. And I said, if I can get this thing published, it at least satisfies a need that, that there's an appetite. And it's not even really about making money, it's just feeding the appetite for sports while nobody was playing sports in real in real life. So I just I really just buckled down and I did a couple more edits of it and added a couple more voices, little you know, rehashed a little dialogue here and there. I think I actually wrote the final chapter, which I like the way it ended, but the ending that you read the last two or three pages kind of closed off the book and that was written in early 2020 and got it out there and got it published
3: definitely a journey and um the pitcher the protagonist in this book who makes the deal with the devil is uh jamark and um there's a lot of detail about his his baseball journey you know from a local phenom and an injury and Uh, then what happens after the deal and a lot of the action does take place uh, in minor league baseball maybe not quite a minor league baseball that we are familiar with a fictionalized minor league universe but you you know through bus leagues baseball going to so many games in the tampa area um, how did your knowledge of minor league baseball specifically inform this novel
5: i i love that question it's a a fantastic question and you're absolutely right i was able to kind of put myself in a small stadium You know, and he pitches a game in Boise and I've never been to Boise, but I can picture a small stadium in the middle of nowhere and 500 to maybe 2000 people in attendance, a local announcer, you know, um, you know, you know, just that whole small baseball, small town vibe really framed his early experiences because he ends up making a deal with the devil when he's about 21 years old. So no team is just going to put him straight up into the majors. We all know that that's not the typical route any prospect gets. as a prospect from the lots of rural Mississippi, sort of the Toe Nash story. Uh, if you remember Toe Nash from, that, from back in there, he was definitely a model in just this guy. One scout sees him, one scout signs him for, I think, uh, $700 and new tires on his car. And so it's, it's just this real shoestrings, low budget story of him, Um, you know, I say like after he, um, he encounters a minor league record along the way. And after that, he's able to order a pizza uh, with, with his minor league salary. So it is that reality that minor leaguers are really living by their shoestrings, you know, and some of it is low budget. There is only one reporter covering a game. And that one reporter might be a college-age student who's just trying to get some quotes to build her portfolio. So I definitely really played into that um, without going super in depth. But there is some some really some baseball insider stuff there. And if there's a game in Durham, I had to put a game in Durham. I mean, that's if he's going through the minor leagues, he has to play at Durham at some point. So. Yeah you know i I felt like putting the dorm bulls in there was a was a nice touch now there are no names in there although there is one name and that's the saint pete saints his the major league team is the saint pete saints which was a minor league team i believe one of the early um versions of the forest state league in the 1950s i think it was a class d or class c c team there you
3: go real life informing fiction I guess, as it it so often does, you have to live a real life if you're going to write some fiction. I'm making very profound statements here. And um, in terms of the book itself, in terms of the way it's written, um, it's a chronological story, but, you know, often fantastical and often quite absurd um, with the scenarios that happen. um, Little asides of, you know, what someone says or what someone does. Um, You know, it, it keeps the reader on their toes because, as much as it's basically grounded in America, we recognize there's just an inherent layer of strangeness to it. Um, you know, maybe in the same way you watch David Lynch, and it's kind of a little bit of a skewed take on, uh, you know, elements that we recognize, you know, from suburbia, for instance. Anyway, I, I, I need to stop myself from being so profound with this question, but just wanted to uh, ask you, um, you know, who were your influences uh, in writing this? And, uh, you know, what sort of tone were you trying to create?
5: That's a really good question as well, and I really appreciate you asking. There's an author out there named Brian Spake, and Brian, um, his, he was sort of a big influence on me in about the 2009 to 2012 timeframe. He was a blogger as well, and he would do these absurd NBA blogs. He did a uh, blog called Yay Sports for a while, and he ended up writing a movie called Who Shot Mamba. And he wrote these books called, what was it? A flight of the super airplane where it was just about this giant airplane that everybody would take across country. And it was this big lobbying. Um, conflict between the giant airplane that holds like 5,000 people and, and, and a couple of companies that were making two and three seater airplanes, sort of like a private car versus, you know, a bus. And it was grounded in reality, but it was very much sort of like an airplane. Uh, the, the Zuckerbergs, uh, or, yeah, Zucker, was it Zuckerberg or Zuckerman? Did uh, an airplane. I think it's
3: Zucker, right?
5: Zucker, possibly. Yeah. Um, I should it was know very, that. <laughs> very much like their type of sense of humor. And he had Bruce Willis as the pilot of the plane because Bruce Willis was a celebrity pilot. It was just really absurd, but it was really. There was a lot of plays on words in there and a lot of just ways to take things. And I was like, wow, here's this blogger, creative writer who wrote absurd takes about the NBA and would put his own characters into games. And it's like, this is a huge, any, he he would pump out like a book a year of the super airplane, prequel to the super airplane, sequel to the super airplane. And I was like, wow, these are self published things. And I, I wanted to do that. Like, that was, you know, just like, you were writing for minor league baseball, and we kind of looked up to you. And you know, in the bus leagues, and I looked up to Brian as sort of a creative influence. I said, I want to do that. And I've also been um, highly influenced by um, the Curious Case of Sid Finch. The Sid Finch book is is always a favorite of mine. Actually, I went and reread it after Curveball and the Crossroads was published, and I was like, wow! I just that's another absurd book. I mean, here's a, a Buddhist monk pitching with one shoe. And, you know, how, you know, and the Mets find him and he joins the same starting rotation as Dwight Gooden, you know, so now let's take that character, tone him down a little bit, make it a little bit more realistic, put him in the minor leagues, give him a deal with the devil and and put him back out there and, and see what happens.
3: Yeah, well, it's it's mythical. It's American. It's absurd. And if you want to see what happens, you have to read Curveball at the Crossroads by Michael Lortz. So now uh, the most important question to wrap up on, if someone wants to read this book, how would they go about doing that?
5: Um, So it's available on Amazon. It's available on Barnes and Noble, Walmart, anywhere you can order a book. Um, I also have books. If somebody wants to message me, I can sign a book you know, and, and send it out to them. So I always keep a box of books in my living room at all times. If somebody wants a personalized book, we can definitely Venmo, pay, um, PayPal, Cash App, everything like that. Um, yeah, so Amazon and, and every, everywhere books are fine, everywhere fine books are sold. Uh, you every. can also go to your local bookstore. So I also very much encourage supporting local bookstores. Your local bookstore can order it as well. It might take a couple more days, but you are supporting local bookstores and putting money into, back into your local economy. Absolutely. And
3: uh, I just said I was closing, but what has the response been so far uh, to, so to books, your book?
5: Responses have been really, really good. And if we have about two more minutes, I do have a side story about a response that's minorly baseball related, that is a really awesome story. So all
3: right, do, let's, hear an, let's hear an awesome story then. That, that's right. that's always the way to end.
5: It. So, as, you were, as I was talking about this, I was like, man, I got to tell Ben this story because it's such a cool story. So, in the book, minor league baseball player Jamar Relliford encounters a minor league record. and that record is strikeouts in a game by a starting pitcher. Now I'm not sure if you know this, but the starting pitcher record for most strikeouts in a game is 30 by hooks, IO, IOTT. Right there when you you know in the individual, your eyes got big by 30 strikeouts in a game by a starting pitcher is a ridiculous number. But it happened in 1941 in Paragold, Arkansas in the Class D League, the Class D or Class C League, another one of those World War II records from way back when. So hooks um actually had about a 15-year minor league career that kind of swarmed in. You know, uh, I think he lost a couple of years in the war, in World War II. So he was about the late 30s to early 50s was his minor league career. A lot of, uh, you know, you look at the numbers, there's like 200, 300 innings in the minor leagues which is unheard of now. His, his numbers are major league numbers, but in the minor leagues. So he actually pitched for the St. Saint Pete Saints as well. He ended his career here in, in the Tampa Bay area in the 1950s. Passes away in 1980. His family stays in the, in the Tampa Bay area. I write this book and I just go on, um, on Facebook and I find his son who has pictures of Hooks Iod in uniform in the St. Saint Pete Saints uniform. And I say, Mr. Iod, I wrote this book. I mentioned your dad. I know your dad has passed away. Would you be, ever be, would you be interested? Their family has been so receptive. They came to my book release party. Um, I've signed books for them. They've been the nicest family because I mentioned their dad and their dad's sort of obscure minor league record, real life minor league record in my fiction book. And they've been the biggest fans so far. And it's really cool. It's really cool to have kind of carried on their family legacy. Yeah, that that is an awesome,
3: that's a great story. And it shows the connections you can make within the world of minor league baseball. And now I really do have to wrap it up because I booked this conference room only till 1130. And there's someone waiting outside the door to get in here. Michael Lortz, curveball at the crossroads. Thanks so much for being here.
5: Thank you.
2: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on What's in Your Podcast queue.
1: up this podcast to bring you another thrilling edition of ghosts of the miners now here's your correspondent and host joshua jackson <laughs>
6: Miners, in which all of you out there in Radioland must identify the legitimate historical ball club hiding amidst the fraudulent pair. One once meant something to somebody. The others are the meaningless utterances of an imagined past. In the last segment, I asked you which of the following minor league baseball teams did at one time exist. A, the Henderson Bunnies. B, the Passaic Pomeranians. C, the Yoncala Alpacas. Well, let's jump right in. A, the Henderson Bunnies were a real-life bluffle in the 1929 Piedmont League, a Carolina circuit casually referred to in the press as the Cigarette Loop. Judging by their showing there in 1929, the Henderson Bunnies were non-smokers.
0: <laughs>
6: Led by and taking their name from Charles Bunny Hearn, the bunnies were quick to drive their skipper hopping mad. By the time Herney and the Hendersons cuddled up together, Hearn had set records as a pitcher for Elon College toured the world with John McGraw, led the 1916 New London Planters to a historic Eastern League title, played in the major leagues for six seasons, and been a part owner and manager of the 1928 Piedmont-winning Winston-Salem Twins. The 38-year-old Hearn could not reproduce any of that success with the Bunnies. Dashing out of the gate, they provoked the Henderson Daily Dispatch to call them Mighty after an 11-6 victory over the Georgia Peaches in the middle of the opening month. But Mighty in April can turn to Meek in May. Hearn could not motivate his bunnies with the stick nor the carrot. And by May 21, the team had all the bounce of a dead rabbit. (laughs) Last place at 10 and 16. Bunny Hearn had had it up to his ears. Four days later, on a Friday, the Wilson Daily Times reported, Bun Old Stuff Hearn resigned as manager of the Henderson Bunnies of the Piedmont League last night. Club owners stated that they were surprised by the resignation and accepted it with regret. Neither hide nor hair of Bunny Hearn was to be seen in Henderson again, and Rabbit Moranville wasn't available as a replacement. Catcher Lewis Leo Murphy helmed the team over the weekend, and Lee Gooch was hired for the post on Monday. They didn't make much difference, and it was just more fluff when Bunny's president and cigarette loop seenster guy Winston named himself skipper for the season's final 45 games. Henderson wrapped up 54 and 85, and in 1930, started its stuff as the Henderson Gamecocks, finishing first. And that's the cutesy tootsie on the bunnies. Now, onto the question for next time Which of these unbelievable ball clubs was safe at home in the minors of yesteryear? A. The Diamond City Silver Sox. B. The Elysian Field Heroes. See the Baseball City Royals! Want to know the answer? Ask around the dugout. Or tune into the next Ghosts of the Miners. But for now, you'll have to excuse me. My producer, Ben Hill, is trying to make an omelet, and he's scared of breaking an egg. Yeah!
1: to your friend and ours josh jackson for swinging by with this week's edition of ghosts of the miners and uh that'll uh, just about do it for this week's episode of the show before the show what did i neglect to mention anything
2: no i don't think so it's just it's it's funny coming out of that ghost segment because i feel like that might have been the most pun filled one we've had yet i know every single week when josh writes these scripts they're hilarious and packed to the gills with any reference he can to go back to, you know, the team name. Um, but this had so many rabbit puns. Like, I remember thinking, Oh, great. I have so many ideas that we need to make sure to get into this one. And I don't think there was any stone left unturned.
3: Uh, is well, incredible. If you have any more rabbit puns, uh, we're all ears.
1: He is, uh... <laughs> that one took me a second. Uh, he is, I mean, we have the three, <laughs> the three pun masters uh, between you two and Josh Jackson for uh, working on these scripts from week to week. I just, I, I let you all uh, handle it because I know that anything that I will uh, contribute is not going to be nearly as funny. So um, it's all fantastic work from uh, Benjamin Hill and Sam Dykstra and Josh Jackson as well. Uh, and you can get in touch. Uh, if you've got, as Josh said, on our uh, our ghost specific segment, if you've got a team uh, from your town, from your area, even just from your brain that you know you came across at one point that you think, oh, that'd be a fun ghost of the minor segment, uh, please get in touch and let us know podcast at MILB.com. And uh, that'll do it for this week's episode of the show. Big thanks to uh, to all of our guests and uh, for Benjamin Hill and Sam Dykstra. My name is Tyler Maughan. We'll talk to you next week.